there are uh, programs you can use to follow along with today. As I've said several times, we are celebrating communion today, and I use that word celebrate on purpose. I used to say that we're doing communion. As a kid growing up, my church growing up, we did communion the first Sunday of every month. Did anybody else have that same experience if you grew up in church, first Sunday of every month? And for me, it was just like we did communion. You do communion the first Sunday of every month, and it sort of lost some of its power, lost some of its meaning. It just became a habit for me and for a lot of people. So here at Freedom, we just do it about every 8 to 10 weeks. Our whole service is focused on it, and we want to make it a celebration. We want to remember Jesus. Uh, We share communion as a representation of the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples before going to the cross. He had communion with them, relational communion, before dying as a sacrificial substitute so that everyone, so that all of us, each one of us, all mankind could have eternal communion with God in heaven forever, they had this last meal together. They had communion. So we celebrate it. We celebrate because communion with God only happens because of righteousness. And we are singing about that this morning. We read about that in Psalm 33. And our righteousness comes from God. So today, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at Scripture, at this righteousness that comes from God. We're going to go back in time about 3,270 years. The year, it's right around 1250 B.C. Moses, the leader of God's people, is giving his final instructions to God's people before he hands over the leadership to a guy named Joshua. They are at this point on the east side of the Jordan River. They're about to cross over to the west side to the place called the Promised Land. Moses is not going with them. He's been leading God's people for the previous 40 years. They had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God used Moses to lead them out of Egypt through the wilderness and the desert for 40 years, and now he's getting ready to die, and he's giving the leadership mantle to Joshua. In some of his final words, he gives them instructions about what to do, and these are those words. Just prior to chapter 6, in chapter 5, He reminded them of the Ten Commandments that God had given them in the wilderness. And so now he goes on to talk about these commandments in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, these are the commands, these Ten Commands. These are the Ten Commands, decrees, and laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land. Now, in Cleveland, we think the land is talking about Cleveland. He's not talking about Cleveland. He's talking about the promised land. He's directed me to teach you to observe in the promised land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all of his decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy long life. Can you see that there's a cause and effect relationship here? In fact, it's a triple cause and effect relationship. If you fear the Lord, you will obey the Lord, and if you obey the Lord, you will enjoy a long life. Do you see that cause and effect? Fear the Lord leads to obedience. Obedience leads to a long 
good life. Make sense? Verse 3, Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you. Again, it's going to go well with you when you obey, and that you may increase greatly in the land, the promised land. This land is flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God your fathers, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why would he say this? They were entering a land that was inhabited by other people groups, and all these people groups had their own gods, small g, and they had multiple gods. And he's reminding them, the Lord your God, he is the one true God, and there's just one. There's not multiple. These other gods by these other people groups are not legitimate. There's just one. Verse 5, so you've got to love this God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments, these Ten Commandments I just gave you in chapter 5, that I gave you today are to be upon your hearts. In other words, think about these commands. Meditate on these commands. Memorize these commands. Make these the forefront of your mind and of your existence. They're not an afterthought. They're the forethought. Have them on your hearts. Impress them on your children. That's what discipling is. When we teach our children, our grandchildren, our stepchildren, other people, God's laws, God's words, and help them to obey, and life will go better for you when you obey, that's discipling. So teach them to your children. Well, how are we supposed to do that? Well, he goes on to tell us. Talk to them about it. When you're at home, when you're walking along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, all the time, talk about God's word. Share God's word. Then he goes on to say, hey, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, everywhere. Uh, this is still practiced by Jewish people today. Did you realize that? Can you see this picture here? This guy, he's tied God's word, God's laws. There were 10 commandments. There are 606 different commands in the Old Testament, and they put them in that little box. Does anybody know what that little box is called that's tied to their forehead? Anybody know what that's called? It's called a phylactery, a phylactery. So you can go to Israel today and see people walking around with a phylactery. Can you see that? This is at a hotel room. I've been in different hotel rooms there, and they've got this little thing by the hotel room door. You can go by different homes, and they've got a little thing there, and that's they tied it to their doorpost. Does anybody know what that thing is called? That's a mezuzah. So if anybody ever asks you, it's a phylactery and a mezuzah, and maybe you can win some money by knowing those uh, useless facts. Verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, the promised land, that he swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land that, uh, with large and flourishing cities that you did not build, this is a gift to you, you didn't do it, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, you had nothing to do with it, it's a gift, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord. He's going to give you all these good things. And this is our habit. 
when life goes easy for us, when life goes good for us, when we're completely satisfied, we can tend to forget the Lord because we're just enjoying life and not acknowledging him. Do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I'm going to take a little time out here and explain some things a little bit. There's two different sections to the Bible. There is the Old Testament, which was written before Christ, and then there's the New Testament, which was written after Christ. Does that make we, we know this? Now here, Andrew and Sarah, we have not done a dollar question in months. So the pastor brought some money today. Dollar questions for our, uh, anybody who is junior high and younger. How many books of the Bible are in that Old Testament? Do, you guys, do any of you guys know? And how many are in the New Testament? How many total? Does anybody know total? The whole Bible. How many books? 66. So how many is in the Old Testament? Andrew, Sarah, anybody know? Guess I'm keeping the dollar today. Who knows? How many in the Old Testament? There's 40 in the Old Testament, and if you can do math, you'll know that there's 26 in the New Testament. Those Old Testament books, everything in those 40 books are true. They're absolutely historically true. They are real stories of real people in real places at a real point and time in history. They're all true. The Old Testament is God's story. God interacted with mankind. He chose a people for himself. All these stories in the Old Testament are pointing forward to the New Testament. They're real things that happen, but they were pointing forward. A lot of the things in the Old Testament were what is called a foreshadowing. Uh, the technical term, the theological term, is type and shadow. The type is these are actual historical events that did happen. Type. But the shadow is they were foreshadowing something to come in the New Testament, everything in the Old Testament pointing to Christ, to Christ's redemptive relationship that God establishes with people, making us righteous through Christ. For instance, we just read here, he brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's the type. It really happened. They were physical slaves to the Egyptians for 400 years. The shadowing is that Jesus brings us out of slavery. He sets us free from slavery to sin, the type and the shadow. They entered the promised land. We just read about that. That's a physical, real place on the west side of the Jordan River. You can go there today and see that place. That's the type. The shadow is the promised land is heaven. We have been promised eternal life in heaven through Christ who sets us free from that sin, the type in the shadow. There's more. You can talk about King David was a real person. About 250 years after this story, he was a real person. He was the greatest king of Israel. Jesus came from the same tribe that King David did. That was a foreshadowing to the king of all heaven and his eternal kingdom. Does that make sense? This type and this shadow. We're going to reference this more as we go forward. Verse 13. Moses goes on to say, Fear the Lord your God and serve him only, and take your oaths in his name only. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous 
God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. And you might say, man, I thought God was loving. This doesn't sound very nice. Where is the love here? Listen now. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is eternal. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. He has always been. There is no equal in the entire universe. There can't be because he created the entire universe. He is worthy of loyalty. To not be jealous of our attention and our affection would be inconsistent with his greatness and his holiness. He has to be jealous. That's the right thing based on who he is. Do not let the Lord your God as you did. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. Where's Massa? In Exodus 17, after Moses led God's people out of slavery, out of Egypt, after a, a few months, they started to grumble against God. We don't have any water. We don't have any food. We were better off back in Egypt. They grumbled against him. So he's saying, don't test the Lord. Don't complain. Don't grumble against him. Verse 17, be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees that he's given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, that it may go well with you. And you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future, when, you, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of the stipulations and decrees and the laws of the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves in Pharaoh in Egypt. Type and shadow, we were slaves to sin. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Verse 22, before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. And you can read those great miraculous signs in Exodus 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. He brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land, the promised land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. Another little quick time out. There will be people on television, preachers on television, who will look at this verse and they will say, if we obey the Lord, he will prosper us. He will give us financial prosperity if we just obey him. And I want to tell you that don't listen to those clowns. They're nuts. They're false teachers. Remember, type and shadow. For that type, for the people of Israel, the Hebrews, if they obeyed, God did prosper them financially. But the shadowing, where we live today, if we obey, we don't get financial prosperity from that, but we have eternal rewards from that. Our prosperity is in heaven with Christ forever. That's the type in the shadow. Just because we obey does not guarantee that we will have financial success. I've got great friends, pastor friends, godly friends who live in Haiti, who live in Tanzania, who live in Uganda, who live in Togo. These are great, obedient, godly people, but they don't have financial prosperity. Maybe you're somebody who works hard, serves the Lord, enjoys Him, but you don't have a lot of financial prosperity. It's not because you didn't obey. 
just be, that's just how things happen sometimes. Let's finish up here, verse 25. Uh, if we're careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. There's that word. That will be our righteousness. Moses was saying, if you obey the Lord completely, that will be your righteousness. But there was a problem. God's people did not obey the Lord completely. They were unrighteous. So God made a way. Perfect sacrifice of a lamb. By the blood of that lamb, an atoning sacrifice, a sin offering, so that they could be made righteous. Think of the type in the shadow. We have an atoning sacrifice because we're not righteous. We don't completely obey. But our righteousness comes from God, comes through Christ. And we're going to look at that today. But before we look at that, as we just look back over these verses, I want to observe five quick things that are revealed here that are simple habits of a disciple. We're always talking about being a disciple. Here's five simple habits. First of all, a disciple is somebody who honors God. In verse 2, verse 13, and verse 24, Moses said, Fear the Lord your God as long as you live. And this word fear, the Hebrew word is terah, terah. It means to honor. It means to be in awe. It means to tremble at something. It means make much of God. Give him the respect that is due him. You may have heard people say or refer to God as he's the big guy upstairs. That's not a lot of respect given to God, referring to him to the big guy upstairs. Listen, he is everlasting. He is eternal. He is almighty. He is all wise. He is perfect. He is holy. He is all powerful. He is supreme. He's a creator of the universe. He's not just the big guy upstairs. When I write a sermon, I always, every single time, capitalize the name of God, the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. If I say he or him, it's always capitalized. I've been a pastor for 31 years. If you were to go through any of my notes for the past 31 years from sermons, from Bible studies, from trainings, type, typing them out, writing them out, you will not find one single time where I do not capitalize God's name. When I'm typing in a Google image search and I type in God, I'm capitalizing it, or Jesus, or Christ. It's always capitalized. Why? It's out of respect and honor for God. I heard about a, a Jewish person who, out of respect for God, they won't even write his name out. They'll write capital G and asterisk and then D, just out of respect and honor for God. Now, I could type and write that way, but in my heart not honor him or mean it, but it's a good start to show honor to him. That's what disciples do. Verse 16 said, don't test the Lord like you did at Massa. They tested the Lord by complaining, by grumbling, by doubting his goodness, by questioning his wisdom. You brought us out into the desert to die. We were better off in Egypt. Really? Slavery was better? I dishonor God by complaining and grumbling about my circumstances. Now, if I don't like my circumstances, I can 
do some things to improve them, but I honor God by thanking him, not grumbling and complaining. I especially honor God if I thank him for difficult circumstances. That shows honor to God. We honor God. One way of showing honor is to obey God. And remember, when we obey God, it goes well with us. Did you catch how many times Moses reminded them to obey him? Verse 3, verse 17, verse 24, verse 25. He gave them instructions to obey, and he said, be careful to obey. Focus on, give attention to obedience. Uh, He said, impress them on your kids all the time, everywhere, throughout the day. It's that important. Keep these commands. Keep these stipulations. Why? Because it will go well with us. Life is better when we obey. Now, it's not magic. I obey, and and God gives me everything I want. He gives me favor. Um, He'll reward me with blessings if I obey. It doesn't work that way. But it truly is a better life when I obey. Disobedience comes with consequences to it. When there is there are sexual boundaries that God establishes in his word, and when you overstep them, some of the consequences are STDs, mistrust in marriage. There are uh, the Ten Commandments that were listed in chapter 5. Stealing is told, uh, is said to be a sin. Don't steal. There's consequences to stealing. It's called jail. It's called a ruined reputation. There are consequences to disobedience, and there's consequences to obedience. Life does go better. We don't obey to become righteous. Remember, only Jesus can make us righteous, but we can obey because we've been made righteous, out of gratitude and thankfulness that I, uh, he, he's made me righteous, so I will obey him now. So disciples honor God, they obey God, and they serve God. Verse 13 says, fear the Lord your God and serve him only. Well, how does a disciple serve God? Like, Stacy's my wife, and she's physically present with me, so I can serve her. She likes to mow the grass at our house. We've got a John Deere riding mower. So I serve her by filling up the mower with gas before she drives, checking the oil, making sure it's okay. I sharpen the blades. I I grease the thing. I'm serving her. She's physically present. It's easier to do it that way. But God's not right here. How How do I serve God? I serve God when I serve people in his name for his honor for his glory. And now I can serve people either directly or indirectly impact them for him. For example, uh, Lisa Soy's not here today, so I can talk about her a little bit. She organized our Clothe the Kid ministry. She did a lot of behind-the-scenes work. She was not face-to-face with somebody impacting them, but she was indirectly impacting all these kids and families through the Clothe the Kid by doing that. We had a church work day here the last Saturday of May, and we enjoyed the time together. We cleaned up the parking lot. We painted new lines. The building got, uh, the windows got fixed. Some of the trim painted. Uh, the uh, power washer cleaning off, mowing, we, all that different stuff. That was indirectly impacting all the people that were going to come. When you pray for people, you're not face-to-face with them, but you're indirectly impacting them. You're serving God by serving people. You can directly impact 
people, our, our folks who serve in our nursery or who serve in our children's ministry, those are directly impacting people, serving God by impacting people. When you were here talking to people, praying with people at Clothe the Kid, that was directly impacting. One of the best, one of the best ways that we can serve God is by showing hospitality to one another. We come and gather together on Sunday morning for our own benefit. This is, I hope this benefits you for being here, benefits me by being here. We come because it benefits us personally. But we also come so that we can be a benefit to other people by showing hospitality, by welcoming people, by asking people who, how they're doing. If there's somebody new that you haven't met before, to introduce yourself. That is serving God by impacting people. A disciple obeys God, serves God, and, obey, and, uh, and honors God, and also loves God. Verse 5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, this is the greatest commandment right here. Love God with, with all you got. Jesus said in John 14, 23, that we demonstrate our love by obedience. He said, he who loves me will keep my commands. So I demonstrate this love for God by obeying him. But there's more. This word for love, the Hebrew word is ahabta, ahabta. And it means to desire something. It's like, I desire food. The last two Sundays that we've been together, there have been Kudrowski's Donuts out there on the table. And if you're like, man, that's worthwhile coming here, getting those. I desire those things. I'd love to have some Kudrowski's. I could have one right now, and I'd be really ha satisfied. It means to desire something like food or desire sleep. If you work hard and you get home at the end of the day and you're just beat and tired and you just, just desire sleep. Well, here, when we love God, we're told to desire this deep friendship with God. There's this, this honor for him because he's great and mighty, but he's invited us into this friendship. So we, we love him by obeying him, but we love him by pursuing him, by seeking him, by trying to become familiar with his character. We read about his character. Remember it said that he's a jealous God? He's a rescuer. He's generous. He's our guide. As I pursue him, I learn these things about him, and I love him by knowing him more. This past Tuesday was Stacy's and my 30th, 30th wedding anniversary. And I got to tell you, I love her more today than I did a year ago. And I loved her more a year ago than I did a year before that and a year before that. Why is that? It's because I keep pursuing her and getting to know her more and asking her questions and talking to her and, and interacting. When I love my wife, I pursue my wife. When I love God, when I Ahabta God, I'm pursuing him, desiring him, because disciples pursue God. They don't just know about him, but they know him and desire to more him, know him more. So disciples, we, we honor God, obey God, serve God, love God, and finally, we also remember God. Verse 12 said to be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Specifically, remember what God did for you. When you're going through difficult times, when you're going through hardship, whether it's physical pain, financial pain, relational pain, whatever difficulty you're going through, we can hold tight because we remember what God did for us. And it gives us hope and faith that he's going to come through for us in our present difficulty because he's faithful in the past to remember 
what he did. In the Old Testament, he rescued you and redeemed you from slavery to sin. He's provided or from slavery to Egypt. He provided for their needs in the desert. He miraculously gave them sandals that never wore out, food and water every day. That's in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, remember the type and shadow? We remember that he redeemed me, that he rescued me from slavery to sin. He's provided for my needs. He has sustained me in difficult times. That's what we remember. We all have an enemy. Old Testament, New Testament, today, we all have an enemy named Satan. And he wants you to forget all that the Lord has done for you. He wants you to grow bitter. He wants you to complain like they did at Manasseh when they, or Massa when they grumbled. He wants you to complain. He wants you to fixate on what you don't have. He wants you to fixate on disappointment as you grow cold towards the Lord. So we've got to remember what the Lord did for us. When we celebrate communion, when we share in communion, we are remembering Jesus and what he did. So disciples, we make a habit of honoring God, obeying God, serving God, loving God, and remembering God. We do these things because of all the things that he has done for us. Remember, we love because he first loved us. We do these things as disciples because of what he did for us. And what he did for us, first of all, he gave us freedom from slavery to sin. Thank you, Zach. Verse 12 says that he brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. Verses uh, 21 through 23 say that uh, we were slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand, miraculous signs, great and terrible signs. He brought us out from there to give us this land that he promised. Remember, the Old Testament the Israelites, they were physical slaves to Egypt. He set them free. They were alive because of the Passover blood of the lamb. They were forgiven because of the atoning sacrifice, the sin offering of a perfect lamb. New Testament type and shadow. Spiritual slavery, we were set free, alive in Christ because of his blood. We're no longer subject to the curse of sin. We have freedom through Christ freedom in Christ. Now, do we still sin? Yes, but we have the ability and the resources to resist the power of sin through the power of Christ. And we have overcome through him the consequences of sin. Hell, death, that's gone. We are free and that's why we celebrate. Verse 23 says, God brought us out of there, out of Egypt, to give us the land he promised. This promised land, the Old Testament, physical land was Israel. New Testament, type and shadow, it's heaven. He has given us heaven. Uh, this isn't only mentioned in verse 23, but also in verse 1, verse 3, verse 10, verse 11, verse 18. He says, when you across the Jordan, a land flowing with milk and honey, he's saying, hey, it's an abundant land. It's delicious supply in that land, in heaven. He said, you're going to have cities you didn't build, fields you didn't plant, houses you didn't build, uh, wells you didn't dig, filled with all kinds of good things to satisfy you. You will be satisfied in this land. We will be satisfied once and for all in heaven, in eternity. Jesus fulfills his promise. There was a promised land in the Old Testament. 
Jesus said in John 3, 16, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life in heaven. In John 14, 1, Jesus said, uh, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. This place that you didn't prepare for, a city you didn't build, a house you didn't build, a well you didn't dig, I'm preparing it for you, and I'm going to come and bring you to be with me. So God gives us heaven, and the requirement to enter heaven is righteousness. Verse 25 says that obeying the law will be your righteousness. And remember, in the Old Testament, uh, you had to obey the law for righteousness. They couldn't do it. So God provided a way, the sacrifice, the sin offering. In the New Testament, the type and shadow, the perfect sacrifice is Christ. He is our sin offering. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ died for sins once and for all. The righteous, that's him, for the unrighteous, that's us, to bring us to God. He has made us righteous. Do we still try to obey God's laws? Sure we do. That's what disciples do. We obey Jesus. We follow Jesus. But obedience doesn't make us righteous. Only Christ can make us righteous. And it's only through his righteousness, the righteousness of God, that we can enter the promised land, heaven, and have communion with God. A couple last verses to look at here. I love 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is going to be our memory verse today, by the way. God made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. It's only through Christ. How does this transaction take place? Well, Peter said it in 2 Peter 2.1. He said, Simon Peter, I'm the author of this letter. I'm a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing this letter to those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, have received a faith that is as precious as ours. It's only through faith in Christ that we receive this righteousness. And I love what Paul says here, talking about his own righteousness and how it doesn't add up. He said, if anyone else thinks that he has a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's saying, hey, if anybody thinks they're righteous, I'm more righteous than you. By, based on the things that I've done and the things you've done, I'm more righteous than you. Here, let me tell you what they are. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. By the way, that's the same tribe that King David was from, the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law. I was a Pharisee. I had the utmost keeping of the law. As far as zeal, I was persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. I was obeying the law, man, is what Paul's saying. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's pursuing him, loving him, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. It's through faith in Christ that the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. That's the only way that we can be righteous is through Christ, faith in Christ that comes from God. Not by obeying the law, but by faith in Christ. We live as disciples of Christ 
ones who have been made righteous by honoring, obeying, serving, loving, and remembering God. Why do we do this? Because he sets us free from sin. He gives us eternal life in heaven. He made us righteous through Christ. What do we do this week? Here's our, before we share in communion today, here's our memory verse that 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And then this week, just two chapters to read. Psalm 118, which isn't very long. Psalm 119, which is really long. Notice how God is righteous, and it is he who makes us righteous. And then be free. Be joyful as you live in his righteousness.